You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Alan Dunn and I, Niels Kasterblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Alan, wonderful to be back with you this week. How are you doing? How is Dublin treating you at the moment? Very very good. Good to be back. Um, lovely uh, sunny uh, Friday here in Dublin and looking forward to more rugby, rugby World Cup at the moment. So that's the, the, the big focus outside of the Federal Reserve and the volatility in markets. Absolutely. Hopefully in that order, I imagine. <laughs> All right. Well, we have, thanks to you, a very solid lineup, I have to say, um, of topics that we will be tackling today. But as you know, before we do, I'm always curious to know, kind of a little bit outside the topics we're going to talk about, um, what's been on your radar the last uh, few weeks since we uh, since we last spoke? Yeah, I guess... Um you know, we'll get into it in terms of the the the, the kind of bond market and treasuries, etc. But uh, I mean, it is interesting. Um, how there's been a couple of articles um, out in the last while talking about the uh, concerns around the treasury market again and the basis trade and the BIS highlighting that the magnitude of that trade, you know, is basically um, these long cash treasury securities short uh, the futures and this was a trade that effectively almost blew up in in march 2020 and the fed had to intervene but um obviously we've seen lots of money flowing into these multi-manager platforms and this type of trade seems to be uh very uh, uh popular in, the, in that cohort so interesting um there was also an article about leverage more generally in the market so just interesting how there is this concern about what we're seeing in terms of the amount of risk taking out there and potential spillovers, um, something that maybe we hadn't seen for a while, but but certainly something I'm focusing a little bit more on at the moment. Yeah. I know we're going to jump in um, to kind of your big macro view right now framework, but I was wondering, I mean, this, of course, has been a week that I think in fairness has been focused on Jerome Powell and what he had to say about the outlook of interest rates. But I was kind of wondering, what if the Fed uh, was wrong when they said that inflation was transitory and it turns out that the current deflationary pressures are transitory? What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's I mean, it's, it's, it's possible, I guess. I mean, yeah, as in everything in the markets and economics, they've got different viewpoints. Um, you know, the, the, we've already had significant disinflation on, the, the manufacturing goods side. So you might say, well, maybe a lot of that has already run its course and maybe from here is, is a risk to the upside. And, and obviously we've had um, energy prices moving up as well in the last while. And, you know, there's concerns around food prices and uh, weather-related concerns. We're in an El Nino this year, et cetera. So, so there are reasons for, for being cautious. Equally, you know, um, we, we might talk about some of the guests we've spoken to on the global macro, Chen Zhao was one, and he, he was making the point, well, we've already had a big fall in inflation, but we might even we might not have seen the impact of monetary tightening yet. So if you took that perspective and we did see the slowdown to come, then we might see an even bigger fall in inflation. That's, that was his viewpoint. So I don't know. I mean, who knows? You can, you can make uh, arguments on, on both sides. Um, I think... 
probably a safe assumption is is probably greater volatility of inflation rates over the next number of years than we've seen uh, certainly in the last decade, which which in itself um, uh, would be influential on markets. Um, you know, gone back in time, Jeremy Grantham at GMO had a model that kind of modeled the, the level of PE ratios uh, for, for the US market. And a key input of that was not just the inflation rate, but the level of inflation volatility with higher inflation volatility generally associated with lower multiples. So I think I think that would be, seem a reasonable assumption. Um, but what, you know whether you know whether you're in the de- the disinflationary or the resurgence of inflationary camp, you know it's it's uh, you know you can make make arguments on both sides. Well, at least that's why there are markets, right? There needs to be people believing in both sides of the argument in order to trade. So uh, I guess uh, I guess that's fine. We may we're going to stay with macro for a while in in the first topic that we're going to be uh, debating. Um, but before we do that, I thought I would just run through a few things that is going on in the trend following space, so to speak. Uh, we are kind of um, three quarters through uh, August. Um, so far, so good, I would say. Looking at the markets, I mean, just from a um, sort of a, a, the last week or so, I mean, kind of the same themes. Bonds been on a lot of pressure. T bonds down two big figures uh, since uh, last week. But then also, of course, the equities uh, have come down quite a bit. And I think, you know, energies have given up a little bit of their gains, at least some of the markets, as far as I can tell. Um, But from a trend-following performance, it has been fairly uh, good so far. But if we look at the the kind of the attributions, I would say the downside, definitely uh, equities um, taking a breather and and therefore been putting a bit of pressure uh, in terms of giving up open profits for trend followers. Currencies could have been a little bit tricky, depending on your uh, kind of weights. Um, Mexican peso, which has been a good trend, uh, came off this week. Uh, British pounds have been selling off. So, you know, depending on your system speed, they could have been causing a little bit of downside pressure. But on the other side, the positive side, and I think these are pretty strong uh, sectors for many trend followers, it's the fixed income uh, markets, uh, first and foremost. I think the continued sell-off, uh, given what's coming out of the Fed at the moment, has certainly helped trend followers, uh, as I expect most of them are still short. But then also energies have done pretty nicely, uh, and of course this is because of the higher prices that we're seeing uh, at the moment. Grains have done uh, okay as prices continue to slide, so that's not where the inflation is coming from at the moment. Um, but actually, live cattle, uh, for those who are interested in prices of meat, is having a pretty strong uptrend at the moment, as is orange juice uh, and sugar. My own trend barometer um, has finally moved a little bit higher. It's, I wouldn't say a breakout, but it's at 52. So uh, it could be a little bit interesting and exciting for trend followers from, from a performance perspective. In terms of numbers, as of Wednesday, um, beta 50 index up 2.44 for the month, up 2.07 for the year. SockGen CTA up 2.79, pretty strong, up 1.18 for the year. SockGen Trend up 3%, up 60 basis points for the year. And the short-term traders index up about 1% for August, down 2.4% for the year. In terms of equities uh, and bonds, MSCI World down 3.35%. 
for the month, but still up uh, 10.89% for the year. World government bonds, as mentioned, having a rough time, down 1.53% yet again in August. And the S&P 500 is down almost 4%, um, but still up almost 13% for the year. All right, Alan. Now, it hasn't been that long, uh, but it was in August. There was a little get-together in um, the Midwest, in Jackson Hole, to be precise. And one of uh, your guests that has been on the podcast, Barry Eichengreen, was commissioned back in February to produce a paper for the Jackson Hole Conference to present and discuss it with the heads of Central Bank. I think the paper was called Living with High Public Debt. And I think their thesis is that high public debts are not going to decline significantly in the foreseeable future. And countries are going to have to live with the new reality uh, as a semi-permanent state of affairs. These are not normative statements, these uh, of what is desirable. Uh, They are positive statements of what is likely according to their paper. So uh, take us into um, to this debate and and kind of your your thoughts on this. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think um, this is interesting. Uh, the topic is interesting in itself from the perspective that you know the the whole point on Jackson Hole is it gets together you know key policymakers and economists to talk about what they perceive to be the most topical point of issues of today. So, so the very fact that policymakers are talking about high debt levels and looking for guidance from people like Barry Eichengreen, who is um, who's written a book on, on 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 public debt, but he's also an economic historian, so he's well placed to to comment on you know the trajectory of debt in in a historical context. So the fact that they're focused on this at the moment is is telling in itself, um, and particularly I guess from the perspective of you know it's been. Interest rates, bonds that have been the key move in markets. You know, the ten-year yields up to four and a half percent in the U.S. Uh, just this week, the highest level since two thousand seven. So, sixteen years ago, uh, would you believe? You know, so it's we're, we're, we it, it is quite um, significant that we're seeing these uh, shifts back to what I suppose people of our generation would probably call just more normal levels of yields. But for anybody who kind of came into the markets after the financial crisis, no doubt seem like yeah, very high levels of yields. And um, I mean, the point of, of Barry Eichengreen's paper is to look at um, the current uh, tr- you know, trends in debt levels and uh, understand what's driven them. Uh, it, they, they also talk about you know, the, the, the holders of debt and, and how that's shifted over time. And then also to make observations around, you know, uh, can, can debt, debts be reduced at all or is that likely? Oh, and how is this likely to play out over time? And, and specifically, they talk about, you know, conditions for, for debt sustainability, which I think is going to be something that we're going to hear a lot more of in the next uh, while now because rates are moving up and because we're, we, we've already had a surge of indebtedness uh, and large budget deficits over, over the last number of years. Um, so in terms of some of the interesting points to make, I mean, if you were to look across the advanced economies, broadly speaking, Debt to GDP levels were pretty stable prior to, to the global financial crisis. In some countries, it come down and might have been somewhere in the region of kind of forty to sixty percent. But since then, we had the global financial crisis and the policy response after it. Then we had a period of you know b- back in the twenty tens, austerity, 
uh, was 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 to the fore. That whole philosophy. You might remember uh, there was the paper from uh, Rogoff and Reinhardt where they had an error in their spreadsheets, but notwithstanding that, the view was that once debt to GDP gets above ninety percent, um, it it can be problematic. So the the general economic uh, uh, thinking of the time was, you know, austerity was a good thing um, and necessary. So, so debt to GDP le- levels were broadly stable, I would have said, through the decade. But then, obviously, what you did have was very low interest rates. So people started to say, well, debt is manageable. It just really matters. And, uh, you know, having these very high debt levels. And, of course, we had the, the emergence of modern monetary theory at the time, and uh, which you don't hear a, ho- a whole lot about these days, funnily enough. And, and then a big surge of spending post-COVID and a jump up in debt levels again. And in the US now, the debt to GDP level is is about I think it's one hundred and twenty percent of GDP, but but twenty percent of that is held by federal agencies. So debt in the hands of the public is is about one hundred percent of GDP. Um, you know, it, it, the question is then: Is this here to stay? Are we likely to see these debt levels come down? And what are the implications? And they look at kind of historical episodes of how high debt to GDP levels get addressed, uh, or how, how they have done historically. And they take a very long term perspective. They look back through centuries, and what you tend to find is debt levels tended to historically to jump up at when uh, countries went to war. So the U.S. after the Civil War, Britain after the French and the Napoleonic Wars, France after the Franco-Prussian War, and back in those days, they did tend to then run budget surpluses to bring the debt to GDP levels back uh, in in line. Um, the the point from uh, Eichengreen is that that's unlikely in the current environment. This was all back in, you know, back in the Victorian era of sound finance, as to point out. But that was before, you know, politically it, it was um, it was difficult to 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 to, to pull back. There was, a, there was no welfare state back in those days. So they were saying, you know, it wouldn't be, you know, in the current political environment, it's hard to see us back to a, an environment where governments are going to start running primary fiscal surpluses on an ongoing basis, particularly when you look at the US at the moment, where the economy is very strong and they're still running a big budget deficit, which is not what you expect. You expect uh, fiscal revenues to be strong when the economy is strong. So in terms of the mechanisms to address debt, you know, running a surplus is one. They say that's that's unlikely. Uh, the second typical way you might uh, try and address high debt levels, and you hear this from a lot of commentators, is financial repression. So basically, you, you you kind of force savers to, to to buy bonds or accept a lower rate of interest than than kind of the market rate. So that can be you know uh, either you know manipulating interest rates via via QE, but 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 you know um, forcing say post offices etc to buy bonds or banks to to buy bonds, or else putting caps on on deposit rates like back in the US in the in the nineteen sixties seventies early 80s, I think uh, they had Regulation Q, which which capped interest rates. Um, again, the, the point about this is is that the environment was different then. It may be more difficult uh, politically to do this now. So, so they're skeptical on, on the ability of financial repression. The third way you can uh, address uh, high debt is through higher inflation. And you often hear this, you know, that you can inflate away the debt and maybe the central banks are happy to have higher inflation just to allow that. And again, they're kind of skeptical of this point as well from the perspective of they point out that it's generally unanticipated inflation that will do that for you. So if you get a, a surprise of inflation like we've had in the last couple of years, that can be helpful in in, in bringing down the, 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 the debt because your debt to GDP level 
uh, the GDP side has increased in nominal terms by the higher inflation. But but if you get persistently high inflation, then interest rates will go, will uh, factor that into your debt service costs rise. So again, the the, the, the they're kind of uh, skeptical on the ability of higher inflation uh, to 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 be used to to address high debt levels. So. In some, they, they're kind of saying that high debt levels are here to stay for all of those reasons. An important point around this, though, is uh, what level of debt and deficits uh, are, are sustainable or, or where does it become unsustainable? And they talk about this relationship R minus G, which is something you hear economists talk about all the time. Well, economists who focus on this issue and R is the real interest rate and G is the real growth rate. And basically... You know what you want to have for for greater debt sustainability is higher growth relative to the interest rate because if you're growing strongly, you're going to generate more fiscal revenues and that will cover your debt service costs. Whereas on the other hand, if interest rates are too high uh, and and your growth level is too low, you, you know you're going to be generally the, the the value of the debt is going to be increasing over time because your your fiscal revenues are growing slower than your debt service costs. So R minus G is really important. And they they run some calculations and point out for the US at the moment with with a um, with a, with a with a debt to GDP level of one hundred percent the numbers are very easy to to show that basically you need a primary deficit of a primary deficit of one percent is okay you know that's sustainable over time but the problem is at the moment the primary deficit for two thousand and twenty three is projected to be two point nine percent in and an economy that's already very strong so without anything else the US should be trying to fiscally consolidate at the moment, uh, but that would be proven even more challenging, say, if we went into a recession, because, you know, you're going to have more spending and less revenues, and you tend to see your, your, your budget increase over time. That's not to say it's going to spiral out of control, but that does say, that does highlight the fact that the trajectory is 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 on a negative path at the moment. You know, we're, we're nowhere close to the kind of variables that you would like to see to get to sustainability, and you already have a high level of stock of, of debt. So it's all very significant from that perspective. And I think I think that's partially why we're seeing the move in treasuries that we're seeing this week. It's that this is a factor that people are starting to um, to, to focus in on, on to a greater extent. Uh, for example, if you look at US treasuries and you look at the term premium for 10-year bonds, so that's the difference between the return you get on the 10-year uh, bond versus um, if you just rolled T-bills for 10 years. And normally you would expect it to be a positive term premium reflecting the volatility of holding the bond. Actually, it's been negative for, for a number of years. I think that's related to QE and people, you know, uh, you know, a, a scarcity of, of bonds. But that's starting to shift now. The term premium has gone from negative to positive. And people are saying, well, you know, ordinarily you might expect it to be positive 50 basis points or 1%. But again, that's reflecting maybe Start people starting to reassess um, the, the the safety of of the asset um, and this term premium being built in, and of course the problem with that is at higher level of yields the numbers become self reinforcing in a in a negative sense because the higher rate means your debt service costs increase, um, etc. Uh, so it becomes a, a vicious cycle. So we're not it's not in, in into a negative spiral by any means at the moment, but certain the uh, trajectory of travel is 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 negative. Yeah, that was a great that was a great recap. Um, of course, when you hear all of this, and 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 I completely agree with you. I think that even though actually, um, and I will applaud uh, Jerome Powell for that particular point, and that is he's been pretty consistent in his messaging the last 
I don't know, 12 months or so in terms of higher for longer and all of that. And now, of course, the debt looks like it's going to be higher for longer, according to uh, Barry. But you do wonder why investors haven't, haven't wanted a, a higher premium for buying long-term debt. And of course, it makes it even more inconceivable why people in Europe bought 100-year bonds at zero interest rate or maybe even I don't think it went negative but the 100 year bond was n- not very positive in terms of the the yield and you just think that is absolutely crazy um so interesting now you've had some really interesting conversations on the podcast lately and also going back a little bit further uh, I remember your conversation with Bill White um, but more recently of course uh, David Rosenberg and Tin Chow what are their kind of, or are they, I, I feel I remember that they had kind of different views on these type of, of issues. No, absolutely. And and I think this is one of the points uh, where, where people do have different views. I mean, if you go back to the Bill White conversation, which was probably around this time last year, it was more around um, not just, not so much um, debt sustainability, but 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 kind of, you know, I suppose the dollar's reserve status and 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 the attraction of U.S. as as a destination for investors and will that be you know obviously the, the consensus view is the, the U.S. Uh, preeminence is here to stay but what would change that and and that might be around uh, things like um, the trajectory of debt or the debt ceiling negotiations that type of thing um, I think a lot of uh, as I've been talking about this relationship between interest rates and and GDP. And we're talking about this on on a, on a kind of a long term basis, as opposed to uh, the kind of where the Fed funds is at the moment. Um, yeah, and I guess on the other side of the equation, yeah, people like Chen Zhao saying that you know he felt that Earth Star, which is the kind of the other buzzword that's in the market at the moment, that's the, the neutral real interest rate, that Earth Star actually hasn't changed that much. You know, the Fed would have said it's about zero point five percent or something like that, zero to zero point five. Now, obviously, if that's the case, real interest rates now are, are up to 2%. So that means monetary policy is tight. So you should expect to see a slowdown in the economy. Whereas if actually if Star has crept up a bit, then monetary policy isn't as tight. So nobody knows. Economists can can speculate around this. Um, Chen's view was that basically he thought nothing structurally had changed. Okay, we've had COVID, but, but, but really in terms of looking at the supply of savings versus uh, the investment demand for funds that there's still a surplus of savings. That's fair. That's one viewpoint. I'm a bit skeptical of of that myself, but um, I, you know, I think if you think about the investment that will be needed for the greening of the global economy, etc., now you can debate will that happen or not. But I think it, my view is it, it will do. And you know, I think we're, we've grown more accustomed to to government spending and and bailouts and checks and and. Uh, and that, that, that you know we we will see more uh, public spending over time, so that would be another source of investment demand. So so yeah, there are different viewpoints, um, and equally, you know, going back to the conversation we had, David Ro- Rosenberg was of the view that that we will start to see a shift back towards austerity. But again, politically hard to know if that's the case. We've we've obviously had had a a period in the U.S., particularly when Biden came in initially, where you know he had the ability to initiate policy, a very unusual that you had, you know, the presidency, you know, the House, um, um, Congress, you know, uh, in its in its entirety. Um, so, 
you know, uh, it, you know, once we get, once we get past the next election, we could be back to stalemate, and it could be back to a different set of policies. But it, uh, you know, this whole debate about Earth Star, it is key to this. But 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 yeah, you know, it's it's like uh, it's it's like the old joke about economists: uh, you, you put so many into a room, and you get all the different viewpoints, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. Now let's um, let's pivot a little bit and bring it closer to um, what we normally like to talk about, which is um, trading, investing, and stuff like that. Because, well, partly I guess inspired by a paper from Aspect Capital on FX, but also you could say in line with what we just talked about and all the big f- sort of changes we see in the global economy, um, and perhaps the fact that a lot of countries are starting to kind of be a little bit out of sync with each other now from an economic point of view. One sector that has been really difficult for trend followers to deal with um, in the last 15 years, except maybe for the last year or so, has been foreign exchange. It's a big sector. It's a very liquid sector. Uh, In fact, there used to be a lot of uh, FX-only funds, which we'll probably talk about as well. But Aspect came out with a paper that you highlighted to me. uh, And since I know you worked... Uh, in the FX markets, uh, perhaps you can give us a, a sense how the uh, FX markets, uh, the trading of FX markets have have evolved over the years from a macro perspective, and then uh, we take it from there. Yeah, no, it um, the, the the paper is about the, the that aspects paper is the currency phoenix, so it's about how you know the the, the reemergence of FX trading as as a possible a positive source of returns and the kind of they split it up into period kind of prior to 2008, 1990 to 2008, 2008 to 2021, and, and since 2022. And yeah, I mean, I think it's useful to give a little bit of context on, on the macro backdrop. Um, you know, if you go back to the 1960s, it was Bretton Woods. Um, the dollar was was the anchor. Currencies were pegged. And then in 1971, Nixon... Um, let the dollar float, and the system currencies went to floating exchange rates. Now, for a lot of that period, there was still capital controls in place, and and currencies weren't completely convertible. But as we went into late seventies and into the eighties, that became less the case, and you know you had the growth of the major financial centres like London. So you had much more f- free financial flows. And back in in in, the, in those days, obviously, you know we you know we're all focused on. Paul Volcker and his tightening cycle in 1980s, late 70s, early 80s, and that inspired a big dollar rally. Um, so the 1980s was a was a period of big volatility in currencies. You know, you had the, the the dollar rally that was ultimately reversed by the Plaza Accord, and then a big dollar sell off, and had the Louvre Accord. And then as you went into the 1990s, that continued up to a point in the early 1990s. You know, you'll remember Neil. So, we were in the markets, uh, you had the exchange rate mechanism in Europe and periodic blow-ups of that, and then convergence trades uh, and and uh, a lot of opportunities. And obviously, you could trade not just the dollar against uh, uh, the Deutschmark, and, but you had all the European crosses, like uh, used to be called Mark Paris, as the, the, the mark against the French franc and, and all of this. So there was a lot more opportunity in currency trading from, a, from the number of opportunities, but also you know, from a macro perspective, because you had German unification and Germany raised interest rates and that didn't suit the rest of Europe. So that tended to leave a lot of uh, tension within the system. So a lot of volatility. So that was a good period in terms of the opportunity set for, for FX traders. 
And then we got to the global financial crisis and into the post-financial crisis era. And then obviously what we saw is interest rates around the world all converged to zero. So a lot of the people who, you know, investors and traders in the markets used to use interest rates as a key signal uh, in their models uh, for trading. But, but basically, rates everywhere converge on zero. Uh, we had very little volatility in, in GDP. It was, you know, it was kind of a synchronized economic cycle. All the economies expanded or contracted pretty much at the same time. No, no great divergences across the economic cycle. And low volatility in, in, in interest rates and in inflation and in GDP. So not a lot going on and no, obviously, not much in terms of carry to, to, to generate either. Uh, and obviously, uh, in that period as well, whereas back in the 1990s, you had a lot of you know, um, cross-currencies to trade, the euro came in in 1999, so that took it, took away the, all of that. So, so generally speaking, currency trading has got more, more difficult, I, I would say. But since then, the last few years, it's kind of been back, back, to the, back to the future, back to the good old days. We've seen, obviously, bigger swings in currencies. Obviously, dollar-yen last year, a big move up and then a reversal. What's behind that? Obviously, the reemergence of carry as a driver. So, you know, Japan keeping rates close to zero, negative actually, I suppose, in, at, at the short end. Um, US rates up to five and five and a half percent. So, so big carry force there. Um, more uh, divergences in the economic cycle, you know, stronger growth in the US, much weaker growth in, in China, you know, investor flows as, as a key driver and much more macro uncertainty and interest rate uncertainty. And obviously, I think from from a kind of a trading perspective, you, you touched on it as well. You know, there used to be a lot more uh, de- dedicated currency traders. So, Barclay Hedge has a as a as an FX trader index. Uh, it was up nine percent last year. That was its best year since two thousand and three. And and the five year annualized return is is ticked up to its highest level in a couple of decades as well. But he also published a number of programs in the index, and there's now. 31 currency programs in the index. But if you go back to 2008, there was 145 currency programs in the index. So people, if people maybe new to the CTA space might, might know that, that, that actually there used to be a lot more distinct uh, currency traders. And, and there used to be a lot more currency traders in, in banks as well. Obviously, the other upshot of the global financial crisis was um, you know, Dodd-Frank and a lot of prop desks uh, were were dissolved, and you know, prop desks and banks historically used to trade um, to trade currencies uh, very heavily. So all of those themes are very much consistent with what Aspect uh, point out in their paper. And basically, what they do, as I say, is they split the, the, their their data between 1990 to 2008, 2008 to 2021, and and then since 2022, and they look at the uh, performance of. Um, of carry trades and and momentum strategies uh, in those periods, and and what it shows is that you know prior in in that nineteen ninety to to te- two thousand eight period, uh, you know you, you saw very positive uh, performance al- around uh, momentum and carry. Uh, the zero interest rate period very negative, and we've seen a a, a very strong period of performance again since twenty twenty two, particularly for momentum, but but also for for carry as well. And then they show in terms of those key drivers, interest rates, GDP dispersion, inflation distribution, uh, central bank uncertainty. They have various ways of quantifying that. And they're showing that on each of those that we're seeing stronger 
uh, a stronger market backdrop, and that's perfected, uh, reflected in the, in the one-year performance of these. And also, they look at the success rate of the strategies as well. The percentage of markets with a two-sharp over a rolling one-year basis has increased. So, so what's going on? I think we've had a, a confluence of factors here. We're seeing a better macro environment, which is conducive to, to, to currency trading. We're also seeing probably fewer managers in the space. Uh, so I think that's interesting as well. So the opportunity set is probably better, fewer uh, traders. And, and all of those things combined is, is, is seeing better opportunities. And that's obviously not just for, that's for specialists in the space, but for, for as you say, CTAs more generally. If you go back to the, the winter for CTAs or the last decade, whatever you call it, Probably the two sectors that was most challenging, I would say, were commodities and currencies in that period. And we're seeing, you know, obviously we've had better moves in commodities, but we're also seeing better opportunities in currencies, which is obviously, uh, you know, helpful for, for CTAs. But also it'll be interesting to see, will this see more um, managers maybe coming back as dedicated uh, FX traders as well? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that that is actually quite interesting to see whether it will spark uh, a new wave of currency managers. It, that leads me to another discussion, uh, which I'll bring up in a second before uh, I do that. Just um, two comments. I actually do remember the, uh, the the breakup of the ERM specifically because back then as a, as a, as a young 20-something, uh, I remember being asked to come to on Danish television uh, on the day it was announced uh, that uh, that there was a breakup, and uh, uh, you know, I'm not sure I was the best qualified for doing it, um, but it is something that stuck in my mind having to do it. But anyways, uh, what I would say about the aspect paper, what I love about it is is the visual that they have where they show these three periods, and where you can so clearly see uh, visually how narrow the inflation range were in that period from 2009 to 2021, which, of course, that they called the SERP period. And I think this is um, something that uh, I think we as managers, trend followers in particular, have argued that it was an unusual period. Um, and I still I, I, I am of the, of the belief that when we look back at this period, we will, we will conclude that that was the odd one out even though back then people called it the new normal and thought that's how it's going to be in the future. But I just don't subscribe to that. So, yeah. Now, finally, um, because you mentioned this, it'll be interesting whether there will be a new sort of a breed of, of specialist managers, in this case in the foreign exchange markets. I don't know if you caught wind of the Transtrend paper that Nick and I discussed last week. Um, but actually here in that, Harold does talk about whether you need specialists to trade markets or whether you should just leave it in the hands of a rules-based trend follower um, to do it for you. Um, so I don't know if you um, if you caught that. Um. I didn't, but it, it is something I, you know, I was thinking about in this context as well. And, you know, I, I mean, investing in, in saying with respect to FX, investing in distinct FX managers was something that was, you know, I don't know if I'd say popular, but certainly reasonably common. Um, so, you know, it might seem unusual now just to be an FX specialist when you can trade across macro, but I guess you did tend to have a lot of people coming out of uh, banks who, who and they naturally uh, had that FX background. And then secondly, from an investor perspective, you know, often banks or asset managers or corporates ha naturally have FX exposure, 
And then they have that question of, will they hedge it or will they do a currency overlay? And then if you kind of go into the currency overlay, then you're naturally kind of immediately taking on some level of currency risk. So it's an easy step to make to to, to taking on maybe a currency program as, as part of your, your your portfolio. I think I think in general, like what, what, why you have specialists, uh, it, it's an interesting one. You obviously have specialists in the commodity space as well. You know, I guess, you know, obviously you, you, they bring intimate knowledge to of, of the sector, um, whereas with, with trend following, diversified trend following, you're getting, you know, you're not getting any unique insights on individual markets. The, the, the insight is that markets trend over time and you apply it to lots of markets. So I think it's a different skill set by allocating to, to, to a specialist. Uh, and, and also, you know, for whatever reason, you might have the view that that asset class is particularly attractive at the moment. So if you felt that we're going to see more volatility in currencies, particularly over the next number of years, it may make sense to to trade or to allocate to a specialist currency manager for, for that reason. Or you might see, uh, because there's been a kind of an exodus of managers in the space, that there are more, that there could potentially be a better opportunity in that space. So that could be uh, another reason for for allocating to to a specialist, but but and equally, then obviously, from from kind of a multi strat multi manager perspective, you know, from the perspective of being diversified, you know, you, you will always get good diversification between having, uh, you know, uh, diversified CJs and some niche uh, specialist strategies within there. So I can certainly see 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 the case for it. Um, not to say one is better better than the other. Of course, the euro could uh, break up and suddenly we'll have more currencies again. But at the moment, the trend has also been that there are sort of fewer and fewer currencies to trade anyways. Um, so, so we'll see. Now, we've got a couple of other topics that I think we wanted to dive in. I think I want to, uh, as far as I remember, I think the next one we wanted just to have a quick talk about was sort of a return expectations um, but do correct me if i'm wrong yeah we there was also the the article we saw on the the chinese market so i don't know if you want to talk about that oh, later yeah. no yeah. yeah go ahead go yeah no that's it yeah definitely uh that was the reuters article where uh where it came out as as they call it to highlight an exclusive story china scrutinized quant strategies as market weakness stokes public anchor sources say of course we don't know what sources they are um, but they do talk about in this article uh, um, from Reuters that the Chinese Security Regulator Commission has been checking several major brokers over the past weeks about short-selling activities and trading strategies of their quant clients and um, managers essentially that are using derivatives and data-driven computer models. And uh, I think uh, whether they will impose some restrictions or not, but it is kind of an interesting uh, little topic. What what did you make of it? Yeah, I think uh, uh, you know when I saw the headline, it seemed to be a bit more dramatic, maybe than than it it seems at more you know at, at, at once you dig into it a bit more, you know, but uh, you know particularly it does mention a couple of uh, trend following managers there as been trading in the in the futures um, or uh, Winton and Two Sigma the, the story references. Um, but but actually, I was I was in touch with a contact in in China around it to to get his perspective, and he did point out that this is something that that came up a couple of years ago as well in 2021, and tends to come up when the local equity market is is performing poorly, and um, 
you know, basically the, the market has been struggling. Uh, the Chinese authorities have, um, have you know, in, in initiated various policies to support the economy and the market, uh, and and it's still been, uh, uh, you know, a tough market, and it is heavily retail dominated. So it does seem to be kind of looking for maybe a scapegoat for for why market performance has been poor. I don't think it's necessarily going to trigger any action against uh, futures traders in in the local market at this stage. Um, but it seems to be more directed as trying to understand who who are the potential short sellers in the market more than anything else. So I'll say the the the, um, the headline um, did seem to be quite a bit more a uh, bit bit more dram- dramatic and, and concerning, but but remains to be seen. I, I think it does seem to be a case of a reaction to to poor equity market returns more than anything else. Oh yeah, and this is of course nothing new to us in Europe because we have had short selling bans as well during uh, crises. So, uh, so that's definitely uh, definitely the normal reaction. Um, so, as you say, maybe um, the headline was was just there to sell some uh, some clicks. Um, anyways, there's another article that we may want to get into as well. But is it? Am I correct now that you wanted to just uh, talk a little bit about the paper from Pigtay and? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess one of the um, things we talked about the last time was, you know, um, looking at the the, the kind of return forecasts of the various asset classes, and um, you know, making the case for for managed futures and trend following in the context of of where kind of forward return expectations are for the the major asset classes. So, I was making the point that. You know, if you took, uh, you know, the CAPE, uh, uh, which is the, the cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio and derived, um, which is around 30 and derived, uh, you know, future return expectations from that for equities, I think it would be around five, five and a half percent, something like that. But interestingly, since then, a couple of uh, pieces uh, came across my desk, one from uh, Rubico, um, it's kind of a structural outlook on the major asset classes and return expectations. There was another one from from Peak uh, Peak Day, and then um, actually just just uh, yesterday or today, uh, GMOs they they periodically uh, report or publish seven year asset class uh, returns, and that was out as well. So it's kind of a, a a more of an independent or you know this is what the market is saying around um, uh, where where to see returns uh, going forward, and um, the the Robico. P- paper was interesting in terms of not just kind of giving um r- return expectations but it gives a bit of context and, and equally with with the peak day paper i mean it was interesting reading them uh the two the two papers they talk a lot about the structural factors out there in mar- in the markets at the moment um so for for Rubico it's, it's how fiscal col- policies present a challenge to central banks you know basically the idea at the moment central banks are tightening but we've got fiscal stimulus and that there's a and then here in tension between the two, and how is that going to play out? Uh, you've got um, the dominance of capital as a capital as a, as a production factor has been challenged by labour. Obviously, we're seeing that you know in the US with the strikes at, at UAW at the moment, and we're seeing the structural trend back towards reshoring, you know, and politically profit maximisation can't be the the only goal of of, of companies. And uh, you know, we've got this initiation of a global minimum corporation tax so you know on a lot of levels capital maybe is will be more challenged whereas 
over the last decade that was all favorable. And then you know they also highlight uh, you know the geopolitical developments between between the U.S. and and, and China. Um, for all of that, it seemed like a, 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 a you know a fairly kind of risky environment. The the, the return expectations uh, still looked reasonably positive, um, uh, and and equally on on the PTA side, um, you know they were looking for U.S. equities to deliver six percent annualized going forward. So not too bad. I mean a little bit less than the long term returns, uh, and in Europe eight percent. Um, they were a bit more optimistic on on the outlook for for, for bonds, but equally they were pointing to um, some of these structural trends as well around wages versus capital. You know how inflation likely to be higher over time and more volatile. Um, how you know uh, debt sustainability, as we mentioned already, already is becoming more of a theme. We've got this theme towards reindustrialization. Uh, you've got shrinking labor force, uh, and and everybody points to. The wild card of AI as the thing that might bail everybody out and make the world a better place and boost returns and productivity, but failing that, it it looks a, a more challenging environment. So, so I mean, if you were to summarize those, I mean, Pictet uh, at at six percent for U.S. equities. The uh, I'm trying to see. Uh, I think um, I don't have the the the, the Rubico one in front of me for a second, but but it was it kind of. Reasonably, kind of six to seven percent from 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 memory. On on the other extreme, uh, GMO are looking for uh, U.S. Uh, large cap to do, to be negative two point seven in real terms. Now, I think they have inflation at two point three percent, so so slightly negative um, even in nominal terms uh, 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 for for U.S. equities. So even there, you see a wide range in terms of the expectations for equity. So anywhere from kind of flat to plus six seven percent. For, for for U.S. equities o- over time, um, bonds on the other hand, people ha- have become obviously more positive on bonds given that yields are higher now. So notwithstanding the, the maybe the greater risk in terms of volatility and and mark to market, you know, the starting yield for U.S. Treasuries at at four and a half percent would point to you know a four and a half percent to be a reasonable return expectation over the next number of years. So it's in that context that we'd have to think about well. Um, what's the case for 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 for, for allocating to, to to diversifying strategies uh, like managed futures and and um, and trend following? And as I said before, obviously the, the the benefit for managed futures at the moment is is obviously the higher cash rates that we're seeing. And no matter how many times you say this, it seems people don't understand it or or, or just can't uh, get their head around it. Um, but actually, one one article that did was an FT article recently, which did talk about. The challenge for hedge funds going forward in a higher rate environment, but uh, but how CTAs would be one strategy that would benefit. But even at very modest sharp ratios, then of maybe 0.2 or 0.3, if rates are going to be okay, they mightn't say at five and a half, but if they say at four percent going forward over the next number of years, it doesn't take a whole lot in terms of sharp performance to generate uh, returns that are comparable, at least to equities. And obviously, we know. That the uh, by construction early that they have a a a, a low to, to 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 negative correlation. So so it was really a sense check on my own calculations. I, I was probably a little bit more pessimistic in terms of my forward expectations for U.S. equities, maybe at kind of five to six percent. In the street, you've got anywhere from the more negative from GMO up to kind of six seven percent. Certainly, people are more upbeat on the outlook in emerging markets from a valuation perspective, but obviously, people then highlight that a lot of that is China, and it's a bit of a coin toss as to how that is going to play out. Whether you know, 
are, you, are people happy to take that kind of China geopolitical risk? But but yeah, so so I mean, yes, returns not as strong as historically, not as strong as the last ten years would be reasonable expectations, and certainly the outlook for for, for diversifying strategies looks solid in that context. I would say. Yeah, I thought actually the uh, the the FD article was interesting because again, as you said, it's can be hard for people to quite uh, understand uh, why it benefits uh, people like trend followers so much that we actually have a a reasonable uh, positive uh, real interest rate uh, or maybe a nominal interest rate. And um, so, I mean, the beauty, of course, is that if you're a trend follower. Uh, or CTA and you've structured your product well in a usage format or in an offshore or onshore format, then all the free cash, somewhere between 70 to 90% uh, of the money invested, should be earning nowadays north of 5% uh, in dollar terms. Um, and that's obviously goes straight to the to the investors. Um, so that is very important, uh, of course. Now, one thing I don't know about you... Um, Alan, but I'm not, I don't know enough about these multi-strategy funds, but it did come up a couple of weeks ago when I spoke with uh, Andrew. And his view was that in those kind of strategies where perhaps they use a lot of leverage um, to have all these small kind of pods of teams um, managing um, the money so that the overall leverage probably is, is quite high in notional terms. And if they trade cash products, perhaps uh, it could be even higher. Then higher interest rates are not uh, uh, beneficial uh, like it is with a trend-following strategy. Do you have any insights to that? Argument? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, I was having this discussion with uh, with a client uh, recently uh, on the same topic, kind of d- discerning which um, which strategies would do better, and and obviously, uh, kind of strategies where you have to. Pay a funding cost, say for so for either borrowing or uh, for borrowing a security to 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 short sell. You know all of those pressures in terms of the higher rate environment would would be felt. Um, I think I think it's probably true that yeah, a lot of the multi strats as I mentioned at the outset, are, do run highly levered strategies. So in terms of um, you know the basis trade, that the, the but the, but that is more. Uh, getting the leverage via the futures because you're long long cash and then uh, um, short the futures uh, that way. But but in general, I think it is a point that 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 people are looking at now more closely. That um, it will be a point of differentiation across the hedge fund space and the multi map uh, strategy space. That you know if you do have to um, uh, borrow securities in the same way as you have to borrow cash, there's a, a cost associated with that, and that cost is going up. Every time I see bonds behave like they have again this week, I am reminded, Alan, about our conversation with Roy Niederhofer about whether CTAs could make money from uh, an in, a rising interest rate environment. Um, so if people don't know what I'm referring to, they should go and, and listen to that conversation, which was great. Roy is a, is a great guest. Now, the last topic on our agenda for today, uh, I have very much been looking forward to because you have been traveling a bit and you've gone to these fancy events one of them in uh, paris um and i don't know how many times i've mentioned sock Jin on the podcast but i did not get an invite to this event despite all my free advertising i give them every week but you did get an invite uh which was great and i'm really curious to know 
what are be what are the topics that people are talking about? What are their concerns? What are they optimistic about? So if you can share a little bit of the insights, that would be uh, super interesting. Yeah, it was obviously um, a ma- primarily a um, manager event, but but there, there was a, a, a an investor panel um, where it was interesting just to get a sense of what investors were thinking, and and then obviously from kind of speaking to investors at, at the event, um, the, the, certain themes emerged, um, and also a couple of interesting things on the manager side, at least one which I'll come back to, but. I mean, I would say from the investor side, what what the allocators and um, investors uh, and, and people working consultants as well working with investors were highlighting is certainly one this challenge for for hedge funds in a higher rate environment. Um, and I think this is the fact that we've gone from zero to five and a half percent in the U.S. very quickly, and, and we're still seeing people adjust to that in terms of you know um, as we've talked about before. Um, you know, if you went back two, three years ago and made a case for diversification, it was very much around, well, bond substitutes, you know, you don't, you know, why would you hold bonds when the yield is so low and you've got this duration risk when you could invest in something like trend following or managed futures, which can give you diversification and you don't have that inherent risk. Now we're into a different environment. People can see the attraction of fixed income, you know, for many kind of traditional investors. So hedge funds that were maybe relatively low vol but low return you know uh, if they're not able to generate returns in a higher rate environment suddenly become less attractive relative to to fixed income products so so that's certainly emerging as as an important theme and it was very much the same as in that ft article that 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 the allocators and multi-strats and multi-managers and you know real money investors are, are kind of giving that feedback to to, to many hedge funds that you know if there's no point in taking that risk, if if the returns are are not going to be kind of any better than you would get in 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 uh, in traditional markets, so so that so the you know the the challenge of generating returns, and then secondly, obviously the competition from fixed income, and I'm sure I'm sure that's something you feel as somebody representing a, a you know managed futures uh, strategy and trend following strategy. You know, I mean, obviously yields have backed up, so. That, that becomes more interesting for people who maybe have a natural bias to invest in traditional assets and obviously not just treasuries, but T-bills, but, but also then credit is a little bit above that. Um, now, you can debate uh, how diversifying all of these will be in the event of, of a significant downturn in markets, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but certainly, I think that competition from fixed income is, is definitely, definitely real. Um, a third theme was um, just in terms of emerging managers and a, a kind of a scarcity or, or certainly lower levels of emerging managers launching new programs given the, the rise of the platforms. Um, you know, obviously, if it is harder to start in business now as a small uh, hedge fund or CTA and, and often talent is being hoovered up by the, by the large uh, platforms uh, on, on more favorable you know, in favorable terms to people that make it difficult for them to to start off by themselves. But if you are a, an allocator who's looking for kind of emerging talent, that that is a factor uh, making it um, making it more challenging. Fees is back, seems to be back uh, as a topic again, particularly around performance fees and in relation to you know high watermarks and whether performance fees are after interest, uh, etc. And then interestingly, there was a com- still comments about. You know, 
some clients been, uh, you know, unwilling to go back into managed features even after the good performance because of the uh, the scars of the past are still there. So I was kind of curious to hear that even after a strong run that we've seen in the last few years, some people still have memories of 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 of, of the more difficult time. So so they, I'd say, were were, were kind of the main themes from from a an investor perspective. On the manager side, one of the things that, that I would say is that on the volatility side, it was just notable how, um, I won't go into the details, but the, the dispersion trade um, is has really become something that's become very popular in that space. So this is basically looking at trading the, the volatility of single stocks versus the volatility of the index. So uh, your, your long single stock volatility, short index volatility, it proved to be a fantastic trade in 2022. And unsurprisingly, lots of people are talking about it as a great uh, source of opportunity. It is diversifying relative to traditional assets, but it's just interesting how it wasn't something that you heard a whole lot about, but suddenly a lot of managers are emphasizing as a great source of opportunity. So, so they were some of the key key takeaways. Yeah, I mean, great, great insights. Um, I think from the investor side, which of course I'm, I'm keenly interested in, I don't think those topics necessarily are new. Although I will say I'm kind of surprised that we still have to kind of defend our industry and that people will say, oh, I'm not going to go back to that asset class because I had a bad experience. Uh, As if it's the industry that's the problem. I mean, sometimes it's also the way people um, select uh, and how long long time they actually give the investment uh, to play out. And I can't imagine that uh, a lot of people would say, "Well, I'm never going to touch a bond just because last year was a disaster for 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 fixed income investments." Um, but then that's the reality we live in. On my personal level, you said uh, whether I come across this argument about bonds and the competition, I would say yes. But I think when you take the time to actually explain them, what we talked about earlier that they're not really giving up anything. And if, uh, you know, if yields go down, that's going to benefit them uh, from being, you know, from the fixed income side or the cash management side of the of the funds they invest in. I think most people uh, realize that. And, and uh, so um, I haven't seen, on our side at least, people leaving just because of bond yields going higher. But I think from our conversations on the podcast for quite a long time now, there is this hope, bias, desire to buy the bonds, so to speak. Um, and and people that I respect a lot, uh, kind of global macro uh, type people, boy, have they been wrong in their timing. And just like CTAs were, quote unquote, dumb enough to just stay long when bond deals went to zero and below zero in Europe, we are luckily, we're dumb enough just to stay short as long as prices move down. Uh, and not having uh, been tempted to uh, to buy into this incredibly downtrend in price uh, that we've seen and continue to see, of course, at some point it will change, and um, and so will we. Anyways, Alan, I think this was a wonderful um, wonderful conversation. Really appreciate all the. Uh, preparations you've done. Another thing I want to just acknowledge, uh, Alan, with you is that you're going to allow me to take a little bit of holiday coming up soon without bringing a microphone uh, on on the road because you kindly agreed to sit in and 
and uh, and host a systematic investor series starting uh, in early October and for three weeks. So first of all, thank you for doing that. Uh, I think the audience will be super excited about it. Of course, you have some of our resident co-hosts on the uh, lined up for the conversations. I will be listening keenly to see where you take the topics and the conversations. Um, but um, I really do appreciate that because it is, although I've done it for a long time, traveling and recording over the weekends from a hotel room somewhere. Um, I think nowadays the the pressures are a little bit more um, that we want to sort of keep the quality high and therefore uh, it's in much safer hands with you. So I, th- I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. No, looking forward to it. Uh, be interesting to get the co-host perspective, but no, it should be a lot of fun. Absolutely. And of course, uh, when I come back, um, I will expect uh, viewerships and listenerships to be to be sky high and, and, and you know, from, from all the great content that you're going to produce. Now, if you enjoy these conversations, as usual, uh, you should go to your favorite podcast app and leave a rating and review um, because they do help a lot um, for more people to discover uh, the podcast. And I will say, because I, of course, know the guests that are coming up in the next few weeks, um, they are super interesting um, and not necessarily guests that you find on all the podcast uh, circuits. Um, So I think you will enjoy that. Next week, before I leave, I am joined by Mark. um, And uh, if you have any questions for Mark, you should email them to info at toptradersonplot.com and I'll do my best to get him to uh, answer you um, when we record next Saturday. That's it from Alan and me. Thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, as usual, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.